the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good morning, Grace Church. Uh, it is always a joy to be here, and I wish that, uh, that I was here under better circumstances, but uh, when I, I got the call from Pastor Roger at 6.30 p.m. last night, uh, when I got a call from him that late, I knew that it was probably serious because normally uh, Roger wouldn't call me uh, that late in the evening. Uh, we normally would just exchange uh, just text messages, and, and so I knew that it was pretty serious, and so when I, I picked up the phone and and I asked Roger, hey, how are you doing? Uh, he, you know, he told me that uh, I'm actually not doing that well, you know? And so he um, just explained the situation to me, and he just, uh, just hadn't really been feeling that well. And so uh, he, he needed uh, just an emergency preacher uh, last minute. And so, uh, so I'm thankful that, uh, that I'm able to be here um, primarily just to serve my, my dear brother and friend, to be able to give him uh, an opportunity just to rest and to recover. And so... Uh, Roger, uh, I'm praying for you, Jenny, and the kids, and Lord willing uh, that you'll be back here soon. Um, for the rest of you, uh, if you have your Bible, please take them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And as I was thinking about what to preach on, this passage was really on my heart to share. Uh, it's become one of my favorite parables, and it's not as well known as some of the other ones because it's only found in Matthew's gospel alone. And so I hope to familiarize you with this story, and I trust that it can be an encouragement to you this morning, uh, and that it can even set the tone uh, for this new year. Matthew chapter 20, and I'll read for us beginning of verse 1, and we'll read through verse 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a home who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. And so they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out again and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? Verse seven, they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go to the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day, in the scorching heat. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come before your word now, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, 
and hearts ready and eager to receive your word, that we might be changed by it into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, one of the first things that we learn to say in life is the phrase, it's not fair. It's not fair. And we weren't taught it. It's not like someone sat us down and walked us through, this is how you pronounce it. Here are all the occasions in life that you'll find it useful. Let's practice it saying together, it's not fair. No, it's instinctive. Uh, We see this in our kids. When they have to share a toy, it's not fair. When they can't watch something anymore, it's not fair. When they don't get their way, it's not fair. It's not fair is one of the first things we feel and express in life before we even understand or can even articulate it. And it carries over to adulthood. It's one of the things that we continue to feel most strongly and say most loudly as grown-ups. We feel that our work situation is not fair. The pay is not fair. The cost of living in the Bay Area is not fair. Think about maybe when the last time was that you said this phrase. For me, uh, it was when my wife, Carissa, picked up Chick-fil-A for me. Okay? And Chick-fil-A is my absolute favorite. I just had some last week. And I just cherish it because, as you know, there are many of them in the Bay. And where we live in San Francisco, the closest one uh, is in Redwood City now, but it used to be San Jose, which is an hour away. And so when my wife, Carissa, brought home Chick-fil-A, I was so excited. And the thing is, but when I opened the bag, I found a spicy chicken sandwich with no spicy chicken. It was literally two slices of bread, and they left out the chicken in the middle, and for some reason, they even kept the cheese in there too. And so I thought to myself, like, Chick-fil-A, like, you wrong for this, right? It's not fair. Most of us go through life feeling and thinking that a whole bunch of things aren't fair. And I'm not dismissing there is real injustice in the world. And we should want our laws and justice system and standards to be fair. But here's what I'm getting at. All of us put on some lens whereby we look at the world. See, none of us just experience the world, but we constantly interpret it. And for some, it's through the lens of fairness, where we're always assessing what we think we deserve and what others deserve or don't deserve, where we're keenly aware of what people have and what we don't have, where we compare other successes to our failures, where we're cognizant of whether someone's being recognized and whether we're being ignored. See, we're always sizing up, always calculating, always feeling like we're owed something by our friends, by our family, and even by God. And this has become the socially acceptable sin. It is to look at the world in this way, to be discontent, envy what others have, resent God, and say, it's not fair. But friends, there's another way to look at the world. It's to get up each morning to put on lenses, not of fairness, but lenses of grace. And one writer says that when you do this, you'll see that most days are a lot better than you deserve. And on the really hard days, you'll fight to believe that God is working for good. 
with the lens of grace, you'll rejoice in the success of others. Instead of experiencing life as a series of disappointments where you weren't treated as you deserve, you'll experience life as a gift. You'll see grace all around you. Whatever good is in your life, it's grace. Whatever good is in someone else's life, it's grace. See, it's a profoundly different way of viewing the world. Jesus tells a parable that challenges our tendency to view life through the lens of fairness and shows us that instead life is to be seen through grace. That's what this account is all about. It's a story that highlights the beauty of God's grace to us in the gospel, and it's meant to inform the way we live life. See, this story is meant to change us. And as we go through this passage, I want to look at three things here to deepen our understanding of what Jesus teaches us. We want to look at the parable itself. We want to look at the purpose for why it's told. And we want to look at the principle that's found here that we're to apply to our everyday lives. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing I want to look at is the parable. I want to simply just walk us through this text. Verse 1 gives us the context, and this is Jesus speaking here. And he says this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Again, verse 1 sets the context of the parable for us. Jesus tells a story to illustrate what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in the story, there's a master who owns a vineyard. And it's harvesting season. It's likely September around this time. The, The weather was still hot. And so it was important to gather grapes before the rain came and destroyed everything. And so harvesting was in great demand at this time. And the thing is, you never really had enough manpower in terms of a permanent staff. And so you needed to very quickly find part-time laborers to help get the harvest in on time before the rain. Now, the workday was usually from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, that's important to note as we go through this story. We're told the man of the story went out in the morning before 6 a.m. to find laborers for his vineyard. And so he makes his way to the marketplace of town nearby. And there, he would find men standing around, waiting for work. It'd be like a scene from the time of the Great Depression, where you see men lining up at the docks, waiting for someone to hire them for a job. These laborers were usually unskilled. They didn't have much to offer. They were desperate for any work in those days. They were unemployed except for a day at a time, never knowing when the next job would come. Life for them was precarious because they had to work in order to eat. And if they didn't work, they didn't eat and neither did their families. And so they would congregate at the marketplace in hopes they would be hired. And so this master went to the marketplace on this particular occasion and found these men waiting around. And he would say, you, you, and you, go to my vineyard and do my work. And he sets the terms. I'll give you one denarius for one day's work. Now, that would have been very fair. In fact, it would have been very generous for unskilled workers. And so these men agree. And in verse 2, it says, he sent them into his vineyard to begin work. But then we're told 
Three hours later, at the third hour, which is 9 a.m., the landowner goes back to the marketplace to find more workers. It says in verse 3 this, in going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. No one's hired this group. They're unemployed, and they're looking for work too. And so to those, verse 4, the master said, you go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I'll give you. No negotiation of wages takes place. The landowner simply promises them rightful pay for appropriate work, and off they go to the vineyard. But the story goes, the master comes back to the marketplace on three more occasions. He goes back out at, again at noon, at 3 p.m., and once more at 5 p.m. Now, mind you, this is one hour before the end of the workday. He goes out, and he sees men still standing there at this hour. And so he asked them in verse 6, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, well, because no one's hired us. And he said to them, you go to the vineyard too. Realize, this master is a compassionate man. When he finds out the reason these men are there is simply because no one wanted them and no one's hired them, though they were willing to work, he hires them for just one hour. They had waited all day, stayed all day, likely thinking with each passing hour they weren't going to find any work, but against all hope, this generous man shows up and he says, just go. And whatever is right, I'll give you. And you can imagine, they're grateful to have been so hired, to have been hired so late in the day. And so that's the story. A landowner hires five successive waves of workers at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and 5 p.m., and he sends them off to work in his vineyard. But now, it's 6 p.m. The, the bell is rung, the whistle's blown, it's the end of the workday, and as was the custom back then, everyone lines up to get paid. But a couple of interesting things happen here. First, in verse 8, it says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. The landowner asks his manager to pay the last hired workers first. And you think, well, isn't that a little odd? Usually we pay workers in order of hiring, the first to the last. But this master instead gives specific instruction to do the exact opposite. The workers who were hired last get paid first, and those who were hired first get paid last. And so these men who work for one hour, maybe even less when you account for commute time from the marketplace to the vineyard, they're in front of the line. And those who work all 12 hours are in the back of the line. And so that's unusual. But then a second unusual thing happens. Verse 9, we're told, and when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. So get this, the, the workers who were hired at the end of the day who worked less than one hour, they get a denarius. Now, how do you think they, they reacted? They're like, whoa, this is crazy, right? We worked less than one hour, and we get an entire day wage. This is unbelievable. 
Life is good. And so they're feeling happy, right? And so that's how they felt. Now, how do you think those in the back of the line felt? They see this, and they're probably getting excited. They're thinking, like, yo, what do we get? If they get one denarius for one hour of work, you do the math, we work 12 hours, we get 12 denarii. All right, we're going to have a little extra in the bank. We're going to buy that Tesla Model X. We're going to have a little happy commute home. But verse 10 tells us that when they got to the front of the line, they thought they would get more. But each of them also received a denarius. They had this silent expectation that when their turn came to be paid, they would receive more because they worked longer than anyone else. And when that didn't happen, they couldn't hide their disappointment. It says in verse 11 this, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. They were saying, hey, these guys worked in the cool of the day for one hour, and we worked in the scorching heat for the entire day, and they get what we get? And the master replies to this group of men, and this is really the heart of the story. So let's finish reading this account together. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, and notice what he calls him, friend. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So that's the parable. It ends just like that. But we know that it's more than just a simple story. So what's the point? And I think that's what we want to look at secondly here. We, we want to look at the purpose of this parable. Why did Jesus tell us this? And I believe there are two purposes that we can find here. One, this parable is meant to show that God's grace is manifested in our salvation. The parable is meant to show us that God's grace is manifested in our salvation. See, this parable is really about Christ. He is front and center in this story. Our Lord is unmistakably cast here as the landowner. He is the master of the estate. And specifically, the story is about his grace and the salvation that he offers to sinners. That's what the denarius in the story represents. Well, how do we know this? Well, this parable is, is a continuation of what Jesus had been teaching on in the chapter before in Matthew 19. And there we have the well-known account of the rich young ruler. And if you remember the story, this man goes to Jesus and he asked the Lord this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit what? Eternal life. That's the topic of discussion here. And so from there, Jesus begins to teach on eternal life. And then he tells the story about the vineyard to illustrate truths regarding eternal life. 
And he highlights specifically God's compassion and his love and his grace towards sinners as the one who bestows and gives eternal life. And this truth is found throughout the entire story. We see this truth not only in the master, but we see this truth even in the hired workers and their relationship to the master. Now, you think about them. As I alluded to, life for these workers was desperate. That they were in the marketplace tells us they were in need of some kind of work. In those days, day laborers were just above beggars on the social scale. They were regarded as the lowest class of workers because they were unskilled, untrained, and unemployed except for a day at a time, working from job to job. Simply put, they didn't have much to offer. And so each morning they would line up in the marketplace in hopes of being hired. And on this particular morning, this landowner, he goes out and he finds these men waiting there. And so he brings them to his vineyard to work. Now at this point, nothing really seems out of the ordinary. But it's what happens in the third hour and beyond that tells you something special about this master. This man goes back out, not once, not twice, not three times, but four more times to bring more workers into his vineyard. And each time he found them, the story emphasizes that these workers were what? It says they were idle. Not that they were willfully idle, but they couldn't find work. And so they waited. And it was the landowner himself who initiates who seeks out, who calls for these laborers and brings them to be part of his work. And a question that you might ask is, why does he keep coming back out? Does he not know how many people it takes to harvest? Does he not have foresight to plant accordingly? Does he just not have common sense? Because you think after a while, he would say, okay, well, there's this much land. It takes this many people working this many hours together to gather this many grapes. So why does he keep coming back out? The only answer is that he represents God. And he's coming back, not because he needs more workers, but because he wants to give work. He wants to give of his riches. He wants for them to be part of his vineyard. He goes to the marketplace and he sees these men in their situation, unhired, unwanted, unneeded, and his heart breaks for them. And he has compassion on these workers who really had nothing to offer. And I mean, this is so evident that the quality of workers who are available lessons as the day goes on and each time he goes out see because it would be the young the strong the capable who were gone first on any occasion and yet this master he goes and he finds these second third fourth tier men and they were the ones idle remember he asked them why are you idle and they tell them it's because no one wants us they were the leftovers the scraps for work because they were older they were slower They were less capable. They didn't have much to offer. And yet the landowner looks upon them with a heart of compassion. And he tells them, you too, go to my vineyard. 
do my work. And whatever is right, I'll give you. And with gratitude, they go. And he does this up until the very last group of workers. And he's saying, there's only one hour left in the workday. I don't need you. You can't do much. You won't contribute much to my vineyard. But I want you anyway. I want to set you to work. I want to give you of my riches. So come and go and do my work. Do you see, this was us in the marketplace. The marketplace is where religion has left each of us. Religion has told us that we need to work in order to earn our way to God, in order to earn our salvation, in order to earn our way to the kingdom. But religion always leaves us desperate, always looking for more work to do, always falling short and never doing enough to earn heaven. And the result isn't being with God, it is separation from God in an eternal hell. See, as sinners, we were hopeless and condemned, and it is here that God meets us where we're at. He sees our sin and our desperate situation, and he has mercy. He comes to us in the marketplace of this world, and he seeks to bring those undeserving into his kingdom, not because he needed us, but because he loved us. And he's made a way for us to be brought into the kingdom. See, the Bible tells us that God would provide a savior for our sin. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. And he dies in our place. And he pays the debt that we owed. And he takes the judgment that you and I deserve. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. And as the living God, he promises that if you renounce your sin and your works and instead trust in his works on the cross, you can be saved. See, God is looking for those who are willing to say with a humble heart, I'm not good enough. He's looking for a heart that says, I have nothing. I can do nothing. I offer nothing. And I need God for all things. God seeks those who don't trust in themselves for salvation, but who throws themselves at the mercy of God. And it's only when men and women are at this place and acknowledge their sin and their need for grace and mercy, that's when God will bring us to his vineyard, to his kingdom, to give us eternal life. God impresses to us the fertility of the religion of works where man tries to do as much as he can to be saved and instead points us to the gospel of grace where God has done it all to be saved in Christ Jesus. And so that's the first purpose we see here. Second, we see that God's grace is manifested equally. This is the other purpose for why the Lord tells the parable. He wants to show that God's grace is manifested equally that all who come into Christ's kingdom to serve him, no matter how long, no matter how short, will in the end equally receive the same reward. See, in this parable, 
Some work 12-hour days. Some work nine, some work six, some work three, some work less than one hour. But in the end, they all received the same pay. The point that Jesus makes is those who come first to God will receive no more than those who come last. And those who come last will receive no less than those who come first. The same eternal life will be given to the sinner who turns from sin to Christ at the end of his life as is given to the missionary who spends 50 years in a remote tribe in Africa preaching the gospel. And it is an encouraging thing that life may be inequitable, but God isn't. And eternity won't be either. Every believer, no matter when converted or what manner of service or for how long, will receive the same reward of heaven just like everyone else. But there's another aspect to this. Because the issue of equality of grace doesn't just deal with length of time, but to experience. You go back to the parable. You see, for for the earlier group who, who worked, it wasn't just that they worked all 12 hours, but notice the response upon receiving the same one denarius as everyone else. Verse 12, they said, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. See, what they appealed to and why they accused the master of unfairness wasn't how long they worked, but how hard they worked. These men, it says, bore the burden of the day. They were under the scorching heat. They felt the oppressive sun of Palestine. It was painful labor. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were tired. These men have worked long and hard for their denarius. This parable is in fact told as a response to what Peter says in the chapter right before. If you look back in verse 27 in Matthew 19, Peter says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What then will we have? See, these disciples were saying, Jesus, we've left everything. And we've already endured three years of deprivation in the summer heat of working the harvest. We've been out here in the hot sun, and we've felt the persecution. We've endured opposition. We've known rejection. And yet we see others now following you, and they get the same thing we do? Like, how is that fair? Uh, Let me give you a sports analogy to maybe drive this home. Uh, It's about the Golden State Warriors. See, I, I, as you guys, I I live in the Bay Area and with all these Warrior fans. And frankly, uh, it's terrible, okay? And even worse, not too long ago, the Warriors have won three championships in four years. And I got to give credit where it's due. They probably have one of the all-time great teams in NBA history during this stretch. For me, I'm a Kings fan. And... Because, you know, I'm from Sacktown, born and raised there. And so there was legit happiness that I had for Warriors fans because I've seen how they've endured all those losing seasons like I have as a Kings fan. And I know that Warriors fans, they've gone through the dark ages of the Vontigo Cummings, the Bob Sura, the Eric Dampier teams. And so the reward for Warriors fans when they won was that much sweeter because of all the losing. 
But at the same time, what's funny is I observed that these same fans weren't happy because now they were sharing this mountaintop with people who became fans way back in 2015. (laughs) They know who they are. You know who you are. And so these longtime fans were like, well, it's not fair because people like us have endured all that losing and pain and money spent on like an Adonis foil jersey, right? And, and it reminded me that longtime suffering warrior fans are like those who worked the morning and labored in the heat of the day. And the 2015 fans are the ones who work for one hour in the cool evening breeze. And now older fans are being told, you guys are actually equal. And you're having to share this together the same. And in their economy of things, and objectively in our economy of things, it doesn't seem right. That's how these disciples felt. See, they counted the costs from the beginning. And now there were those who just started following Jesus. And the disciples were thinking, these guys are jumping on the bandwagon at the last minute here. Surely we should get more than they, Jesus, because we've been through so much for you already. And I think, to be honest, they have a point. That what they're really saying illustrates this truth on a more sobering note. That there are believers who come to faith in Christ in some of the most difficult places around the world, where they've endured so much suffering, where their labor is hard, where they've sacrificed so much, even their lives. And it's a sobering truth that at times we forget that at this very moment where we are enjoying the freedom to worship over live stream, Believers around the world are in bondage, are persecuted, and are being martyred for the faith. Here's some statistics that I want to give you here. An average of at least 180 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith. In 41 of the 50 worst nations for persecution, Christians are the group being persecuted most by extremists. More Christians, we're told, have been martyred in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. Think about that. 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith last year alone, with many more who suffer and die unaccounted for, forgotten, and largely unknown. See, they are those workers in this parable who have worked hard, who have suffered much, who have sacrificed greatly under the harsh sun in the vineyard. And they stand in contrast to those who work the one hour in the cool evening breeze. Those like the thief on the cross. This man who was a criminal for his entire life, living a wicked life, people like him will turn to Christ in the last moment of their lives, and they will get the same eternal life as those who suffer all their lives for the sake of Christ. Those who die For Christ, men like Stephen and Paul and John Huss and William Tyndale and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Richard Wormbrandt, those slaughtered for the faith. And we have to ask, is that fair? That those like the thief on the cross 
will get the same eternal life as those who die for the faith. The question is, is that fair? Brothers and sisters, the answer is no. It's not fair. See, but it's grace. These saints, these great saints of old, are the ones in this parable who have worked the 12-hour days. And yet we know not everyone's faith is like that. There are those who serve Christ in contrast in the coolness of the evening breeze. Those like many of us, where there is seemingly no sacrifice for their entire lives. They're born in free and prosperous nations. They have great jobs, accumulate wealth. They have their own homes. They have good health. They go on vacation anywhere around the world. They can live out their faith in freedom without any fear of persecution. You look at us. We've not shed one drop of blood for the gospel, to my knowledge. Sure, I've been criticized. And I've been opposed by my parents for a time. I've endured mild hostility. But I've not shed one drop of blood for Christ. Because I'm one of those who have labored in the cool evening breeze of the vineyard. And often I ask myself this question, is that fair? Is it fair that I would receive the same denarius, the same eternal life, and the glories of heaven with all those who go through so much suffering? Is that fair? No, it's not fair. It's grace. Jesus is telling us, all who come into the kingdom of God, serve, and, and they, and, and, to the kingdom of God and serve him no matter how hard, no matter how easy the circumstance, will in the end equally receive the same full reward. We ask, why would God allow us to suffer so little compared to those in the world? Why would God bless us with so much while others have so little? Why would God allow us to enjoy what we have while others are deprived. We don't know. It's only by His grace. And all we can do is bow our knee and marvel. We praise God for this grace. This leads to the third and final point, the principle here. The parable, the purpose, and the principle See, there's a practical application found in this story. And it's simply that the grace of God is to affect the way that we see life. When it came time for the first workers to receive their pay, we know, right, that they took exception. But notice what the master says in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? The master is saying that he kept his end of the deal. He was just, that he did no wrong here. They agreed to Daenerys, and he gave it. What he chooses to pay the latter group of workers was completely his prerogative and right to do so. And so he says the problem here is an injustice because he gave as he said he would. Instead, the problem is 
jealousy. It's your envy. It's your selfishness. The master says this, or do you begrudge my generosity? The the literal translation for this in the Greek is, is your eye evil because I am good? The landowner asked whether they were seeing with an evil eye. Was their perception, was their perspective wrong? And the obvious answer is yes. And this gets to the root of the problem here. See, this this wasn't about the denarius they received. It's about the denarius they saw others received. In verse 12, these workers complained, you made them equal to us. It wasn't that they were upset with the pay they received. They were upset that others received the same pay as them. They resented the generosity of the master, the people who they felt weren't deserving. And this sort of perception of people and life and even of God led to this greater problem. They focus on what others got rather than being thankful for what they got more than they deserved. And Jesus rebukes his disciples for this very thing when they were complaining, it's not fair. What more do we get? And I believe this speaks to this issue of their heart, and it spoke primarily to this issue of their unthankfulness. Their unthankfulness. And I believe this is a word to all of us. Because let me ask you, are you a thankful person? Or are you someone who lacks gratitude? Now, if you don't know the answer to that question, let me give you a series of diagnostic questions to ask yourself to evaluate whether you're a thankful person or one who lacks gratitude. Would people who know you characterize you as a complaining person or a thankful person? How often do you point out something wrong with work, people, and life in your conversations? Conversely, how often do you affirm evidences of grace in your life and in your conversations? Do you look at the world and find many reasons to complain because things aren't going your way? Or do you look at the world and you find yourself being blown away at the many reasons you have every day to give thanks? Do you view yourself as one who has been constantly shortchanged and neglected? Or do you view yourself as one who has been unfairly showered with blessings? Do you often say, if only I had this or if this was different? Or do you often say, I can't believe God has given me this? Those questions are searching. They're sobering and they're humbling because far too often we're more like these morning labors than we like to admit. See, we look at life through the lens of our perceived fairness that he has such a nice job and making good pay and I have this one. They always get invited to things and I'm left out. They always get attention and I don't. The guys always notice her and not me. 
Their marriage and their kids seem so good and ours doesn't. They have everything going for them and yet life is hard for me and the complaint and the cry is always the same. It's not fair. And that's coming from a place where you think you deserve better. Certainly better than others. And I think why we feel that way is because we don't really think of ourselves as a sinner as we are. But God desires for us instead to put on lenses of grace. He wants us to see the gospel, to view the cross, and to see grace as amazing once again. That the God of this universe would love me and give me the greatest thing in his son, and he continues to give me more than I deserve. See, Jesus is having us recalibrate our view in light of the cross to see who we really are that we're simply sinners who have been saved by grace. We see that there's nothing good in you and me, and we have nothing unless God grants it. And it's when we see ourselves and life in this way, feelings of humility and thankfulness, rather than entitlement and disappointment, are what fills the heart. When we see through the lens of grace and in light of the gospel, You'll have reasons to be grateful everywhere you look. There will even be moments when your life is marked by disappointment, loss, and trials. And none more so than this past year during a pandemic when the world is all but shut down and our lives are seemingly on hold and not as it should be. And you find yourself asking, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to my loved ones? Why is this happening in our world? And you ask God, where is your grace? And through the lens of grace, we'll be able to see and to hear God say, the grace is in your trials. And that God is accomplishing something good through the pain, even when we can't see clearly. And when we're able to see in light of the cross, the world will begin to look like a different place a better place. And God will appear as he truly is, the God of grace, who gives us better than we deserve. Grace Church, is this not the more satisfying way to live? Is this not the more appropriate way to view the world, to view ourselves, to see all of this the grace of God in the gospel. This is hard. Every day it's a fight in our hearts to do this. And my exhortation, friends, is for you this upcoming year, for you to be disciplined, to see and to live in light of grace. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to do so for this upcoming year. That Grace Church would be a church and people of thankfulness. And that you would see life through the lens of grace. And that you would worship our God in light of who he is. And of the gospel of grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while we are yet sinners, 
God, you loved us and you sent Christ to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for making a way for us to come to you through faith and repentance in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that upon receiving this grace in the gospel, you continue to bestow grace upon grace in all that we have. And so, Lord, we pray that even when life doesn't seem to go according to plan, would we see as you desire for us to see through the lens of grace so that we might be people who are thankful, who are humble and worshipful because of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.